Good morning. How are you guys? Good, very talkative. Good, good, good. This is going to be a whole call and response message this morning, so we're going to depend on that. If you have a Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. I know that you guys have been going through uh, studies in Revelation looking specifically at just the glory of Jesus, and that's been your focus. And so um, I just kind of wanted to come and, and share something just kind of to complement that. You know, uh, I think it's always awkward kind of doing a, a one-off sermon, and sometimes you feel like you're just coming and I'm going to blow everything up that's trying to be built. And so I didn't want to do that. Um, and so this morning, I want to I share with you guys just, uh, just a great truth, something that I love um, just to meditate on, something that has brought me such great comfort in my life. And it is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 13. And it's about our anchoring hope. Um, you know, the question that Peter really addresses in his letter is the question of how are we to live as the people of God? As most of you know, if you, if you watch the news, if you are uh, involved in any sort of um, public domain, politics, whatever it might be, you know just how radically the culture is changing. Um, I just think of even the last 15 years, just the sexual revolution that has um, just swept through our country and that basically what we're just seeing is that everything must bow to this new revolution. We have a whole new set of ideals and new sins that can't be committed in the culture or else you're banned. You know, you, you take a stand for this and, you know, Bruce Springsteen isn't going to play a concert in your city or whatever. I mean, just this crazy stuff that's happening. And it's just, you wonder like, when did all of this happen? When did this all take place? And Anyway, <clears throat> the question for us and the question for the church throughout the ages is how are we to live? How are we to engage with society and with the challenges that we face in the culture? And I think for me, I think for many others, we, we deal with a, a series of temptations. I think number one, we have this temptation when we see the world, you know, as, as it were, going to hell in a handbasket, you know, or the, the culture being corrupted or whatever we might say about it. We have this temptation to flee, right? We have this temptation to remove ourselves, to remove the influence of the church in the world and to hide away. And, you know, we create our own you know, version of kind of everything that's out in the culture, out in the world, and we, we, we do it our way, and, and we don't really connect with anybody outside our bubble in these things, right? The other temptation is that we fight the culture. We just take it head on, right? It's like, oh, they're going to legislate, and they're going to do this, and so we're going to legislate. We're going to do this, and, you know, it's the power of the sword. It's the power of politics, and we're going to, you know, just combat all of this. And then the, the third temptation often is just like, well, I, I feel like I've been swimming upstream for so many years and I'm just tired of swimming. So, you know, I mean, does this stuff really matter? Does God really care about this stuff? And can't we just all get along? And, you know, can't we just love? Isn't God a God of love? I mean, isn't that the thing that we find in the New Testament? And so we're tempted to just, just kind of give way to this. And, you know, this is what many of the liberal denominations have done in our country. So how are we to live as a people of God? What are we to do? How are we to engage with society? What places our faith have in our everyday lives? And as I said, this is a question not just for the modern church, but this has been a question for the church for the last, well, I mean, we could say 2,000 years, but going back even to the time of Cain and Abel. And this is the main issue that Peter tackles in his first epistle. <clears throat> Peter is writing to the church scattered, through what is, scattered throughout what is today modern Turkey. 
And these Christians were undergoing persecution because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't just trials or frustrations, the hardships of life that they were going through, but particularly because they were Christians. They were in conflict with the surrounding culture because they were citizens of the kingdom of God. One commentator says, they are on a collision course with the priorities and virtues of the surrounding culture. And so Peter is writing to tell these believers how to live, how we are to be the people of God, how we are to be the light of the world, the city that is set on a hill, how we are to be the salt of the earth. I said this last service, but when you think about the Great Commission or when you think about the Sermon on the Mount and how Jesus describes his people, you know, those characteristics don't change with time or they don't change with the condition uh, in which the church finds itself. Like, well, if you find a very open, very accepting culture, then this is how you're to live. You know, or if you find a very hostile culture, well, then you pull back and you don't do it so much. You don't shine as bright, right? It's like, these are the walking orders. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That doesn't change. And it hasn't changed for the last 2,000 years. So Peter writes to the church to encourage them, to exhort them, to engage, to love, to respect, and to actually transform the very communities in society that are bent on their demise. But think about that. How is that any different, really, than the gospel that each of us have received? What does Paul tell us? He says, Paul says, while you and I were enemies of God, Christ died for us. While we were, as it were, you know, in the category of Psalm 2, like, oh, we will cast the cords of God and any authority he has over our lives. Christ loved us, died for us, sent his spirit, captured our hearts, and brought us into his kingdom. And God is calling each and every one of us to go out and to do that same work by the power of his spirit, to be parables of Jesus in the culture around us. <clears throat> I love what John Piper says about this text. He says, the question raised for these believers is the same that we should pose for ourselves today. How can we have the power of soul in times of great stress and anxiety, not just to endure the evil day, but to be joyful and to fill our lives with the fruits of righteousness, with deeds of kindness, with projects of mercy, with labors of love. See, the question isn't how can we just endure? We can do that, right? We can harden our hearts. We can get through it. We can shut our mouths and just, you know, have this private devotion to Jesus all by ourselves. We can huddle together and just kind of get through it. But that isn't what God calls us to be as the church, is it? He says, I've brought you in to send you out, to give it away, to tell the truth to others, to proclaim the gospel. So how do we do that? How do we engage? How do we continue to be the church? How do we produce the fruit of the spirit and the fruits of righteousness? How do we love our neighbor as ourself in a world and a society where our neighbor is bent on our demise? He goes on to say, how when your life is in jeopardy or your job or your marriage or your health or your respect in the community, how can you rise up with joy and bless those who abuse you and devote yourself to labors of love? To, be bu- to, excuse me, to busy yourself for love's sake takes power in the very best of circumstances, but to spend yourself in love to others when your own life is falling apart, that takes a power of soul which is utterly beyond you. 
If that is what we are called to do, then the power has to come from some source greater than the human soul. So I guess I'll pose it this way. Where do we get the power to live the way that God has called us to be as his people? Where do we get the power? And Peter tells us that we get the power to live out our faith, to represent God's kingdom by having an anchor of hope. Read with me 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. We'll start in verse 13 and then we'll go back and kind of come back. Peter says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, being clear-headed, set your hope fully, completely on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so here's what Peter wants to do. Before he even talks about your particular situation, the particular situation of those that he was writing to, before he even talks about how to live as a Christian in this hostile community, he wants first to anchor their hearts and minds in the most important, most powerful thing in the whole universe. Actually, the most powerful thing, the most important thing about you, if you are a Christian, the most important thing about me. This he wants to do in order to hold them steady or if you will, to lay a foundation to build upon, or if you will, to give them a kind of you know, spectacles, goggles, through which they can view everything that life on this fallen planet might throw at them. Uh, I used a climbing analogy for first and second service. I'm not sure it went over that well. Uh, I personally have climbed, like rock climbing is what I'm talking about here, like not like the stairs. Um, I've done a, few, a little bit of rock climbing and you know, I know just from my little bit of experience, you know, how important it is to set your anchor. I mean, you, of course, I mean, this makes a lot of sense, right? You're on this precipice, you know, it's like a 200 foot, 300 foot drop, right? Whatever. You see some of these people do this crazy stuff in Yosemite or places like that. And how important it is that you set the secure anchor. And once you have that security, that anchor set in the crag, what does it give you? It gives you a freedom, right? To climb that rock face, to do all sorts of stuff. I mean, you, maybe you've seen some of these pictures, people that like climb Everest and they're sleeping, right? Are you guys awake, by the way? I mean, that's crazy, right? Like I had a bunk bed growing up and there were multiple times where I would have these dreams that I was falling. And you know what often happened? I would wake up on the floor the next morning, right? So I cannot even imagine what it would be like to anchor myself on some precipice in Everest and go to sleep for the night. Like you have got to have some great confidence that that anchor is holding you. Total freedom of sleep, right? Get your REM, do all that that you need to do so that you can climb the next morning. Whole point being how important that anchor is to give you security that will enable you to be free. And see, this is exactly what Peter wants to do for us. And this is what the New Testament constantly wants to do for us. It wants to set our hearts and our minds, our way of thinking, our way of acting, our way of speaking on something greater than ourself, something that you can build your whole life on, something that is so absolutely secure that you're set free. You're set free to be who God calls you to be. And you know what, you guys? Who God calls us to be is not easy. It is not easy. And it's definitely not easy in a world that is bent on our destruction, that is going in the opposite way of God's kingdom. 
And so God wants to give us such great security and hope so we can be free to be the people of God. So we can be free to be a people of hope in a world without hope. And this is the first thing that Peter tells us. We need to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to talk about this. What is it that he's actually talking about? What is this hope? It is God's coming salvation. Now, for some of us, and I want to be careful about this because I know that this can be a sensitive subject, but... Some of us think of salvation only in the sense of like, I was guilty, I was a sinner, I have been set free from my sin, and now I'm going to heaven, right? Now, first of all, you're not going to heaven forever. Heaven's gonna come to earth. God's gonna restore all things. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's, it's the salvation when the Bible, when the New Testament talks about it, that's like a part of it. Salvation is not less than personal forgiveness of sin but it is so much more, so much more than that, right? And, and, and Peter wants to open up our eyes to the holistic view of salvation. And that has to do with the redemption of our bodies. That has to do with uh, a new heaven and a new earth. That has to do with the shalom of God, with the rule of God on earth. But I'm getting way ahead of myself, right? But this is the idea, right? Focus everything, bank everything on the coming kingdom of God. So he says this in verses three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, reserved in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Peter wants this church and he wants this church to live in, to meditate on the fact that they are part of a glorious hope. What is that? The salvation that is coming the salvation that is coming, right? So real quick, before we go any further, let's, we need to talk about hope for a second, right? Because we know a very different hope than the writers of the New Testament. We say things like, well, I really hope, you know, I get to go to Europe one day, or, you know, I really hope when I go to Mexico that I don't accidentally drink the water and, you know, dot, 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 right? I really hope that I don't go bald, though I am, right? Um, but we say things like this, to wish very strongly that something will or won't happen to us, although we know it's not likely. See, when the Bible says that we need to set our hope fully on the grace that's to be brought to us, it's not like, oh, I hope that God does this. I'm really, you know, like, you know, come on, God, come through, right? No, it is absolute assurance. It, it, it speaks of hope in a sense of longing for what is certain to come absolutely certain. Listen to the words of Peter. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That will be brought to you. It's happening. It's gonna come. And so you need to set your hope fully upon that. You need to anticipate what is to come. That's what he's calling you to do. So we can define hope in the New Testament sense as this, a full assurance or strong confidence that God is going to do good to us in the future. That God loves us and he's going to do good to us. I love that passage of scripture and I say this all the time, but remember Paul tells us, if God did not spare his only son, his most precious gift, do you really think 
God will not give you all things? That's what Peter is talking about here. Absolute assurance that God has your goodness in mind. Your good and his glory. So, if that is hope, this assurance that God is going to do good to us, a living hope would be fertile, fruitful, productive hope, right? A living hope means it produces a certain kind of thinking, a certain kind of living, a certain kind of speaking. It it produces change in our lives, change in how we think, how we behave, change in the way we see things, change in the way that we react to them. This living hope we have in Christ for the glory that is to come should radically change everything about the way we think, we speak, and we live. That is the work that the gospel, that the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to do in our hearts, to do in our lives, to do in our minds. And that's what Peter wants to do, right? He wants to see this change produced in us so that we are the people of God, so that we become what we are, a light of the world, a city that is set on a hill, the salt of the earth, bearers of the image of God, ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. So what is this hope? The first thing that Peter tells us about this hope is that it is something that we have received not through work or money, but it is something that we have been born into by the mercy of God, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great or abundant mercy, overflowing of his mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Listen to those words. This has all come from the heart of God. Salvation is God's big idea to to do good to and to claim rebels as his beloved children. That's God's idea, right? And he has caused each and every one of us to be born again. You didn't choose God, he chose you. That's what Jesus tells us in John He has caused us to be born again to this living hope. So Peter is pointing to this fact. We have not just become or attained citizenship, but we have been born, born again into it. The right or the status is ours by the new birth. Now, Peter tells us that this living hope is an inheritance, and that inheritance is four things, right? Imperishable, cannot spoil, undefiled, cannot be tainted by evil or sin, your sin, my sin, unfading. It cannot wither up or dry up. And lastly, reserved in heaven for you. Heaven is like this holding place. Nothing can get to it there. It's just like perfectly tempered storehouse, if you will, right? Not only that, but we ourselves are being guarded by God. Now, I I was thinking about this as I was teaching last service. I was thinking about, like, okay, guilty confession. My wife was watching The Princess Diaries the other night, and I was doing some other stuff, but I kind of got sucked into The Princess Diaries with my wife. It wasn't the first time I saw it, and I kind of liked it, you know, Um, and I grew up watching all the Disney princess movies anyway, because I have two sisters. But so the whole premise of the movie, right, is this, this girl is living this life, you know, and she's doing her thing, and she's kind of a nerd in school. But then what happens? One day, 
her grandma shows up and the bomb drops, like her grandma is like the queen of some country that Disney made up or the writer made up, whatever, right? But what does she find out? She is the sole heir to this kingdom. She's a princess, right? The Princess Diaries. If you haven't seen it, I mean, now you have to. Um, not really. But I mean, so many books are written on, on this premise, or maybe some of us even think this way, you know, like, oh, like when you're really struggling, like, man, maybe I got some crazy uncle somewhere that I've never heard of. I've never cultivated a relationship with him, you know, and I'm gonna, if one day somebody's just gonna knock on my door and like, hey, Uncle Larry's dead, and, and yeah, like, you, you don't know him, and you've never cultivated a relationship with him. You've never done anything to deserve this, but you get his whole inheritance. You're the sole heir. I mean, that's kind of like what we're being told, right? Like you haven't done anything to deserve this or earn it or, or bought it or anything. You, God has bestowed this upon you. But the greatest thing about this gift that God has given you is that nothing can touch it. Nothing can separate you from this complete work that God has determined to bring, this good that God has determined to bring into your life. How encouraging is that? What a word of security that we, that our hearts long to hear. Our hope is absolutely sure because nothing can happen to our inheritance. Absolutely secure. Remember, Paul tells us at the end of Romans 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Salvation is God's gracious gift to you. You can never earn it. You can never lose it. Undefiled, imperishable, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, I know I'm belaboring the point, but what is this inheritance exactly? Because I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm still not sure, right? We've talked about hope, and we've talked about, you know, it's an inheritance, and we're going on and on. We're almost done with this point, I promise. So, what is this inheritance specifically? Well, here's the funny thing. Peter actually doesn't say. <laughs> he doesn't. You like read it, you're like, ah, I feel like I'm missing something here, right? But if you flip to 2 Peter, Peter says this. His divine power, uh, 2 Peter, you guys are so great. You guys are Bible people. This is awesome. Right, we're like screen people at our church, you know? So I have to put everything on the screens uh, for people to follow along. So he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, since you are following along in your Bibles. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, listen right here, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Did you hear that? That through these precious and very great promises, you and I might be partakers of the nature of God, the glory of God, that we might share in it, right? Isn't that what it means to partake of, to be a part of? Other New Testament writers also refer to this inheritance, though Paul is the most specific about what it is. Listen here from Romans 8. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, if ch children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, that's those who, of us who are in Christ, he also called, 
Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, Paul in the same chapter goes on to say, now the creation is waiting with eager longing for this revealing, for this glorification of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, to decay, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, okay. so what, what, what are we saying? What is Peter saying? What is all this about? Peter is telling us that the great hope that every single one of us have, the thing that you've been looking for your whole life, the thing that your soul longs most for is coming. And what is that? Well, Augustine says, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O Lord. Every single one of us were made to run on God the way a man creates an automobile to run on fuel. That's what C.S. Lewis said. And this is what we have to look forward to in the end, at the end of history, is that God will close up history by filling up the creation with his glory. That you and I, the sons and daughters of God, are like vessels, are like cups that are waiting to be filled up with the glory of God. I mean, isn't this what David is saying in Psalm 23? My cup runs over. What's he talking about? He's talking about God filling him to overflowing. Now, let me marry two passages of scripture to you. These have become so important to me in my life. But remember that passage, because you guys are Bible people, which I know. But that passage, it's so obscure in the prophets. And only at Calvary Chapel, I feel like, could I just reference this. And everybody's like, oh yeah, totally, I know the passage. But it's this one, right? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And like, you can go to the chapel bookstore and like, they probably have that and you can hang it on your wall, you know, or maybe some of you ladies, like you, you're into uh, cross stitch. That's what it's called. I almost said embroidery. Uh, cross stitch, right? And you're like, oh, I'm gonna put that on my wall, hang it in my bathroom. But do you really know what that means? Let's be honest. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's like the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord like water is wet. What? Like, what does that mean? As the waters cover the sea. Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this amazing chapter where Paul is unpacking for us what resurrection means. Jesus' resurrection is a fact of history. If Jesus has been resurrected, that also means that we will be resurrected, that our bodies will be made like his glorious body, that this corruptible will put on incorruption, that this mortal will put on immortality, that death will be put to death by Christ himself. He will put it down and righteousness will rule and reign. And finally, in the end, it says that Christ will deliver up the kingdom to the Father in order that God might be, what? All in all. You guys are great. Bible people, it's awesome. Right? God might be all in all. What is that? That's a filling up. That's what these passages are telling us, that the creation is a chalice. It's this cup. It's this vessel that is waiting to be filled with the glory of God. This is what God originally intended for us. You know that, that God created Adam and Eve to be lowercase. God's, well, I guess for you guys, it's that way, right? Sorry. Uh, I use my G's forwards, not backwards. It, that we are lowercase gods and goddesses that were to rule over the cosmos as the image of God. And yet we forfeited it. 
as enemies of God. We rebelled against him. We decided to choose for ourselves what was good, what was true, what was right. And yet this is what God intended for us. And this is the whole creation story, right? That God has entered in time and history to rescue us, to bring us back to his intended purpose, that we might be filled up, that we might be all that he created us to be, that in the end we might be whole, that we will share in his glory and in his likeness. This is where we're headed. Now, scripture doesn't, like, describe in great detail what this looks like. And sometimes we wish it did, right? We wish that Paul would be more descriptive about what this is. But aren't all of us guilty of thinking less of the glory that is to come rather than more? Remember that passage? Of course you do, because you're Bible people. Remember that passage where Jesus, the, the, the religious leaders come to him, they're like, hey, listen to how stupid the resurrection sounds, Right? Some guy, he, he like, you know, or some woman, she was married to eight guys or seven guys because of the, the Levitical law. You know, she married one and then he died. So then the brother has to marry and then he died and then the brother has to marry and then he dies, you know. And so then like when they give, you know, when they go to the resurrection, who's she gonna be married to, Jesus? Listen how stupid it is. And she's like, oh no, the problem is that you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. <laughs> and he's like, the problem is, is that you think that glory to come is less than this life, or you think it's patterned after this life. But he's like, I tell you, it is so much greater. What does Paul say? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. It has not even entered into our minds the glory, the goodness that God has reserved for those that love him. We are guilty of thinking less of the glory, asking silly questions, and I mean, Sorry, but we do, right? Like, am I gonna know people when I get to heaven? It's like, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, you are, you know? Like, you're not gonna be more stupid than you are right now on that question that you just asked, right? <laughs> this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal should put on immortality. You know, C.S. Lewis in his book, The Great Divorce, he does a beautiful job of doing this. When these ghostly specters that are from earth come to this heavenly plane and they have this invitation to go to the mountain of God to meet the divine, to meet with God. But when they get out on the heavenly plane, what happens is that the sun is so bright, it's like burning their cornea. The grass is so real and so vivid, it's cutting into their feet. What, what is Lewis trying to describe for us? That the glory to come is so much more real that every single one of us are gonna become something so glorious that if we saw it right now, we would be tempted to worship ourselves. That is what is in store for us. We will share in the divine nature. We will share in the glory of God. This is what Daniel tells us as well. I'm not making this stuff up, right? We who win people to righteousness, to salvation, will shine like the firmament forever. We will share in the glory of God Again, Lewis, he says this. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward promised to us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. For we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Oh, we are far too easily pleased, right? And I think this is often the case for us Christians, or I'll just, I'll just say myself, this is often the case for me. 
The case is, it isn't that my desire for the glory is too strong, the glory that is to come, but it's that my, it's actually too weak. I don't think enough. I don't meditate enough on the great and precious promises that God has given me that I might be a, a partaker of the divine nature. I don't think hard enough. I don't think long enough. I don't long enough for the glory that is to come. Why? Because I'm far too easily pleased with stuff. And you know what happens again and again to me, and I know what happens to you, is we make good things into ultimate things, and then those ultimate things don't satisfy because they're idols that cannot deliver. And when they fail us, we wonder, what is it all about? God, where are you? What happened? I thought marriage was a gift from God. I thought it would fulfill all my desires. No, absolutely not. It's not God. It's not glory. It's not the kingdom. Our hearts are meant for you, O Lord, and they are restless until they rest in you. We need to think more deeply upon the glory that is to come. And if we did, if we do, church, it will radically change our perspective in the here and now. It will radically alter the way you think about money, the way you think about sex, the way you think about relationships, the way you think about self, your identity, the praises of people, the criticism of people, all of this will be changed. You will be set free from all this insecurity. You will experience the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Why? Well, that's what Peter tells us next. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though, if you, excuse me, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I said this in the beginning, but the trials and persecution that Peter's readers were experiencing are directly related to their faith in Christ Jesus, right? Because of their Christian faith, they're being marginalized by the society. They're being alienated in their relationships, threatened with, if not experiencing already, a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing. Now, this is Sometimes, right, like we read about like what's going on, like maybe in the book of Revelation, right, in the church, the letter to the churches, and you're like, oh, I don't know how to relate to this, right? Like, you know, some of you are in the synagogue of Satan, and you're like, I've never been there. Like, I don't even know what that is, right? And like some of the persecution that we read about, it, whether it's from the prophets, it's in the New Testament, it's the early church, we, we have a hard time relating to. Uh, I've never been flogged for my faith. I've never been... Had, stones thrown at me, right? I've never been threatened with crucifixion or loss of you know, like my family being put to death or any of these things. And sometimes I think it's hard for us to relate. But you know what? First Peter actually relates perfectly to the situation that we live in now. We're experiencing ostracizing, censorship, suspicion from people. We're being marginalized. You might lose a promotion. Why? Because of your faith. I don't know if you guys... Um, how much you guys follow the news, but I remember a couple years ago, there was a, a fire chief in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. And this fire chief was a, a born-again Christian, and he had always treated all of his employees fairly and was just a great guy, a great manager of the team, all this kind of stuff, just an outstanding guy, right? And um, he started doing something, he started meeting with some of the guys on his team outside of work, 
And he started doing a Bible study with them. And at some point in time, like he printed up like a statement of faith, you know, about Christian beliefs. And in there it had the, what we believe about sexual purity, what we believe about that God has created sex to be within the confines of a lifelong relationship and marriage between a man and a woman, right? It simply says that. It might have mentioned something about homosexuality being a sin, but the point is he did this outside of work with people that wanted to be there, and you know what? He was let go because it could be possible that in the future he might treat other people who don't hold his views unfairly. It might be that he might do, right? He's losing, he's suffering, he's being ostracized, he's being treated unfairly because of a possibility that he might do something that some people don't like. You know what? This is just the beginning. This is just the beginning of what we are going to experience as the church. And Paul told us this, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. We're gonna follow Jesus the suffering servant, we're gonna suffer. It's no wonder that Jesus says, if any man come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. It's a crucifixion. That's a death to self, right? I'm totally off on a tangent right now. But the whole point being <laughs> that we know somewhat of what Peter is describing here for us. We know what it is to be slandered. We know what it is to be excluded. We know what it is to be marginalized. And so the trials that these people are experiencing are very much like ours today. But Peter tells them this. He says, rather than grieving, getting depressed and discouraged by this, they should rejoice. They should rejoice. Listen to the words again. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You're going through these things. You're being dishonored. You're being slandered. You're losing power, influence, privilege, all these things that you might have worked hard for by rights. They're yours in, in some sense, right? In the way that our society is set up. But you're losing these things for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of following him and being a part of his kingdom. <clears throat> Peter says that we are to rejoice. Why? The rejoice, of course, is not a continual feeling of hilarity, right? We're not like called to be happy, clappy Christians who are just like, everything's good. Oh yeah, like, oh yeah, it's cool. Oh, it's cool, man. Jesus, it's cool. It's like, no, it's not cool. Like this actually really sucks, you know? Like, let's be honest, right? So we're not to have this continual feeling of hilarity, nor is it to be a denial of the reality of the pain and suffering. I, I love this um, this phrase that the scripture gives us, right? Paul says, we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, right? That's how some of, you know, more of our services as the church need to be because there are people around us who are dying separated from God. There are people that are getting a call on the phone telling them the autopsy came back and they have cancer and they only have so long to live. We live in a fallen world where terrible things happen. And things happen to us actually because we're following God, right? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That's the dichotomy that the scripture gives us. So we have this anticipatory joy that we can experience even now despite our outward circumstances because we know that our sufferings are only, as Peter says, for a little while. 
and our inheritance is sure and eternal. Not only that, but Peter says that these are refining us. These are causing us to lean more and more upon God, more and more to to know and to understand what it means to find our rest in the Lord, more and more that we find our strength in him, more and more that he is the fuel to our lives. And all of this, it says, will result in our praise, our glory, and our honor. I did read that right, I promise. How many of you think when you think about going to heaven or you think about the kingdom to come, you think, I'm gonna get there and, and God is gonna praise me, right? Hands in the air, people that think that, right? Good, right? It's probably good not to think that usually, right? And we can find lots of scriptures that would say, no, 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 no. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You shut your mouth, you know, or you like change your way of thinking, whatever. But listen to what Peter says. All of this will result in all these trials that are happening to us. All the slandering that's happening to us will actually result in our praise, our glory, and our honor. We will hear the divine approval, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Well done, good and faithful servant. We will hear the same words that Jesus heard. Think about that at his baptism. The divine approval upon us, that is incredible to think about. I, again, I love what Lewis says about this, and it's a little long, but bear with me. I mean, I'm the one that's in control right now, so you have to. Uh, just kidding. And that is enough to raise your thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing. With no taint of what we should call now self-approval, she will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be. And the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. And if God is satisfied with his work, the work may be satisfied with itself. I can imagine, he says, someone saying they dislike my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back but a proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. For in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or the other, either conferring glory that is inexpressible, the divine approval, or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God and not merely pitied by him, but delighted in as an artist delights in its work or a father delights in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is, Lewis says. That's from the weight of glory. What is Peter saying? Peter reminds us that though we may be slandered and persecuted, though we may lose the approval, and, and may we, though we may lose honor of others for the sake 
of our faith in Christ, listen to this, we are loved and honored in the eyes of the only one in the universe that really counts. God the Father looks at each of us and says, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you have that approval, what else do you need? Right? Do you need to be on the, wrong, on, on the right side of history? When you know the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who will close the book of history? Do you need the honor and praise of your coworkers, of your family? Do you need human approval when you have the approval of the one who created you, who knows you completely and will never leave you or forsake you, though he knows you completely? That's what Peter wants to fix our eyes upon, that status that we have by grace. We can never earn it. Remember, it's a gift. We've been born into it. We can never lose it. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved for us. Not only that, but as I said, all these trials that assail us are working out for our good and also for a far and exceeding eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And now one more thing Peter wants to exhort us with, and that's this. If you haven't picked up on it already, you are so very privileged. I am so very privileged to be where I am right now. What does he say? Concerning our salvation, the Christ came according to the scriptures. He lived, he died, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, he sent the Holy Spirit. Happy Pentecost Sunday, by the way. Do you guys know that? It's Pentecost Sunday? That's the one thing you guys are not. You guys are not liturgical people. Oh, it's okay. Well, it's, it's Pentecost Sunday. He sent the Spirit into our hearts. Now we cry out, Abba, Father. The sal- salvation is it's come, right? What Jeremiah longed for. No man will tell his neighbor, know the Lord, for all will know me from the least to the greatest. The new covenant has come. It says, the prophets who prophesied about this grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them indicated when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Hey, in these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You notice how many times Peter says you? You. Hey, it's you. It's not about you, so don't, don't, don't take it that far. But look at this, right? He's, he's telling us we are, we are the envy of prophets and of angels. Now, how many times have you wanted to go back, right? Oh, if only I could go back to the beginning days. You know, I just had such a sweet communion with the Lord. If only I could go back, you know, to the great awakening. If only I could sit under Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If only I could sit under C.H. Spurgeon. If only I lived in the golden days. If only I lived, you know, back in the 80s with the religious light, right and the moral majority and, you know, when America was good and godly and Christian and all this, right? Every generation has this temptation, this desire to look back, be nostalgic, to glorify the past. Peter says, don't do that. Don't do that. Because where you are right now, you are the envy of the prophets. You are the envy of angels. They longed for what we have. What do we have? 
Christ came. The work is finished. To Telestai, he said from the cross, paid in full, salvation complete. The Spirit sent into our hearts as a guarantee, pointing, directing our lives and our hearts towards that day of salvation. We're just waiting for Christ to cash in. So don't say, poor me, oh, Obama and the Obama administration is ruining my culture and my family and all this. Yeah, well. It's okay, the kingdom of Christ still stands. We are serving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, right? So because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, because we have an anchor of hope that will not give way, we can be excited. Because we serve the living God, when we're scared to death, we know the one who raises the dead. We know the one who came back to life. We know the one who put death to death in his own death. In Christ's greatest weakness, think about that, he, created, he, he defeated the greatest enemy of mankind. John Owen once wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. What a title, right? The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. We know the God who raises the dead. And since we know this wonder-working God, this almighty God who brings salvation, this God who in the most darkest of times, in the most weak of days, in the most tragic of moments, raises the dead, turns the tide of history, what might God do in our generation? The people of God are a people of hope. We will not be burned by the fire for he is the Lord our God. We will not be consumed by the flood. No, why? Because we will feast in the house of Zion. That's the promise of scripture. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can stop the promise of God, the salvation that will be revealed, the kingdom that will be established. And we need to fix our eyes on that. So. In conclusion, this is what Peter is saying to us. If you, if you haven't tuned in till now, right? Tractor beam. Focus. Here we go. I'm going to focus too. If you are a Christian, if you believe the resurrection is true, if you believe that Jesus has died to save you, to redirect your eternal trajectory irrevocably toward God, if you believe God has accepted you for Jesus' sake, through an act of supreme grace, you are part of the kingdom of God, this unshakable kingdom. So then what does that mean for our lives now? So what, Peter? Now what? It means living hope. It means living hope. The kingdom of God, again, means a guaranteed new heavens and new earth, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, a healed material creation, absolute human wholeness, well-being. Think about it physically, spiritually, socially, economically. The kingdom of God in which righteousness reigns. 
That is the kingdom of God. Shalom, complete healing of all relationships in the creation will be reconciled to God, will be reconciled to nature, will be reconciled to one another, and will be reconciled to ourselves. And Tim Keller says this. He says, and to the extent that that future is real to you, it will change everything about how you live in the present. Really? Well, let's give some examples. Why is it so hard to face suffering? Why is it so hard to face disability and disease? Why is it so hard to face loss? Why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it's going to cost you money, reputation, maybe even your life? Why is it so hard to face your death or the death of a loved one? It is so hard because we think and act as this this is the only life we will ever have. I'm so guilty of that, and I know you are too. I think and I act as, as, as though this is the only life I'll ever have. Remember what Paul said? If we have hope in this life of loan, we're the most foolish, most pitiful people on the face of the earth. If that's the case, let's eat, let's drink, let's get drunk, let's shoot up, let's go shack up, let's do whatever the heck we want, right? Let's live as though we are our own, as though we belong to ourselves. If this is the only life we have, it's easy to feel as if money that you have now is the only wealth you'll ever have, but, right? The big but. I didn't mean it like that, but anyway. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So you can be free from ultimate, society, or, uh, ultimate anxieties. You can be free to give your wealth away. You can be free to be the generous people of God. Why? Because we know where we're headed. We know the inheritance that we have. We know the riches that we have. Remember, if God did not spare his own son, will he not freely give us all things? We have a heavenly storehouse to pull from. We can be free. We're free. We're free. We're free. We're free. This is the theme of Galatians, right? We're free to serve God, to serve others, to humble ourselves, to bear the burdens of others. We're free to speak the truth to our wife, to our children. We're free to tell people the harsh truth that they need to hear to wake them up, to help them. Why? Because God gives us ultimate approval. The approval of man comes and goes. But God says to you, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased, right? So if we're having a hard time in our current circumstance, and I'm the first to admit, right, I am prone, I'm prone to depression actually, very prone to this, very prone just to like be so discouraged And so I constantly am brought back to this. If you're prone to depression, easily discouraged, irritated, fearful, anxious, Peter would ask you this morning, where is your hope? What are you hoping in? Are you hoping in your job? 
Are you hoping in your relationship? Are you hoping in your family? All of these will end. Whether they fail you or not, I mean, I guess that's up to debate. But they will end. But the kingdom of Christ stands. For Peter, there is no other hope than salvation and the total restoration of all things through Jesus Christ. Last thing I want to say. Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, he said this. There are three doctrines to support the Christian joy in all circumstances. They are, our bad things will work out for good, Romans 8, 28. Our good things, like adoption into God's family, justification in God's sight, union with him, cannot be taken away. That's Romans 8, 1. Thirdly, our best things, life in heaven, the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, our resurrected bodies are yet to come. That's Revelation 22, 1. Think on these truths that are yours in Christ. May they enable you to live out your hope in Christ in a world without hope. Lord God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hidden. Lord, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. I pray this morning, Lord, this, this Lord, reminder of what is true would come in by the Holy Spirit into our hearts so that it would eat away at the lies that were being fed by the culture. Lord, the lies that were being fed, Lord, from ourselves. Lord, would be, be a people of your truth, be a people that speak the truth to ourselves. Lord, would we be a people, Lord, that continually come back to anchor our souls <clears throat> in the hope of this salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last days, the coming kingdom of Christ. Lord, out of this security, would you set us free? Lord, would you set us free to seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness. Lord, to build and labor for your kingdom. Lord, inspire us, I pray this morning, to be your church. Lord, you have gifted and called individuals, I believe, even here this morning. Lord, you're calling them to step out to serve you. Lord, to show mercy and compassion, kindness to the poor, to reach out and disciple to provide for those in need, Lord, and, and just a whole slew of things, Lord, that even you, Jesus, modeled for us. And I pray, Lord, that it would all be because they have such a great hope and confidence of the inheritance that we have in you. Lord, that it would all be a gospel response, Lord. We're only doing this, Lord, because of who you are and what you've done. Lord, do that, we pray, by your Spirit. We commit ourselves to you and to your kingdom. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen.